Hi, and thanks for this introduction. Um, I realize that the introduction makes it sound like I think history is not important, and that my talk is mostly going to be about why I think history is important. <laughs> so I just want to flag that at the beginning. Um, at EAG, we're mostly here to think about the future, uh, what kind of future we want to build, and how we can build it. Um, and I think that's what we should be doing, and I'm super excited about that. What I want to talk about today is ways in which I think history can help us think about what sort of future we could build, and how to actually do that. Uh, I think there are a lot of historical research questions which might help us to work out what stuff we should be working on and how we should be working on this stuff. Um, so I'm going to start the talk by outlining some research areas that I think could be important in this regard. Um, while you're listening, I imagine that some of the research areas I bring up, you'll think, oh, that would be cool, I'd like to know the answer to that. And some of them you'll think, huh, like I'm not sold. <laughs> um, and I'd really encourage you to like, pay attention to the ones that you're not sold on, um, like ask questions about them, think about why certain research questions seem important to you and why others don't, because uh, that's like part of the discussion that I want to that I want to create and that I think people should be talking more about. Um, also, I want to flag the things I'm going to talk about are research questions where I think we should find out more about the stuff, not things where I'm like I know the answer. If I knew the answer, I wouldn't need to give the talk. Um, so, but with that, I'll start by thinking about how history might help us to work out what we should be working on in a kind of cross prioritization way. Um, so, one example of this is if you're thinking about the far future. Um, which a lot of us in this room are, uh, there's a question about how, like, whether we can actually influence the future at all. Is that practical? Um, and there are some kind of methodological questions about history which might help us to answer that. So what I'm thinking about here is something like the fragility of history. Um, if history is completely predetermined, um, and if we can work that out through some process of philosophical inquiry or historical inquiry, there's not much point in working on the far future. Right? Uh, like, a classic example of kind of a theory of history which is predetermined is Marxist history, which has largely been discredited, although largely for ideological reasons. Um, uh, and I think it would be worth spending some time thinking about whether there are good arguments uh, that history is completely predetermined, whether those be philosophical arguments or arguments to do with physics, uh, because that would change uh, that would change how excited I was about working on the far future. Um, there's also possibly a question about if history is the opposite of predetermined, if history is completely random and we believe in chaos theory or something, uh, maybe it's also quite difficult to influence the future. Um, so that's one area of historical inquiry that might help us work out whether or not the far future is a good thing to be working on. Let's imagine that we've solved that problem. Uh, we've looked into it, we've worked out that history is somewhere in the middle, and so we think that it is worth working on the far future. Then we might have a question about whether we should be working, whether we should be focusing more on existential risks or on uh, global catastrophic risks. There are a bunch of different, uh, different things that feed into that, but one of them is uh, how likely is it that we would recover from a catastrophic event? where um, the, the less likely we think it is that we'd recover, the more important it is that we should work on uh, avoiding catastrophic risks. Um, and here I think there are lots and lots of areas of history that might help us answer that question and put a probability on the likelihood of recovery. Um, so an example of this is looking at previous civilizational uh, shocks, uh, so big, big mortalities that have happened in history, and thinking about um, whether we recovered and how we recovered and what were the factors that influenced that. So probably the best example of a really, a really enormous catastrophic shock in history is the Black Death, uh, which killed something like 10% of the global population, or in Europe, something like a third to a half. Um, so it's a huge mortality event. Um, and interestingly, uh, while it was completely devastating, uh, civilization did recover pretty well. Uh, you know, it looks like standard of living went up after the Black Death, uh, productivity wasn't seriously curtailed, um, and we didn't kind of lose all of the knowledge and all of the technology that we had beforehand. In fact, there was some technological progress that speeded up after the Black Death. Um, so looking at that and thinking about why we recovered from such a big shock uh, could be quite useful for reading into 
whether we should work on global catastrophic risks or not. Um, there are other examples, more modern examples of uh, high mortality events. Um, so something like uh, World War I combined with the Spanish flu killed maybe 4% of the world's population, or World War II maybe 3% of the world's population. So those are um, those numbers are huge, uh, but they're smaller than we might maybe fear for some, some kind of catastrophic risks. Um, so it's not, they're not necessarily um, an exact analogy, uh, but still thinking about how we recovered and what, what it would have taken for us not to recover uh, could be useful for working out uh, how, how urgent it is that we work on global catastrophic risks. Um, there are also examples from history of times that, that small civilizations did not recover uh, from catastrophic events, and looking at those could be really useful as well. So. Uh, a really salient example might be um, uh, some of some of some American civilizations in the wake of European um, invasion and colonization, uh, where diseases like smallpox wiped out whole civilizations. Um, another example might be Easter Island, or I have a I have a slide Easter Island. Where is it? Easter Island, um, where as a result of um, as a result of um, ecological um, exploitation and also disease from uh, ships coming from Europe and stuff, the population completely collapsed. Um, so looking at, looking at events when uh, civilizations haven't recovered and thinking about what the factors are there could help us work out uh, how urgent catastrophic risks are as compared to existential risks or indeed other cause areas. Um, there's another way in which history can help us approach the question of global catastrophic risks, which is instead of looking at uh, collapse events or near collapse events, we could be looking at progress. Um, uh, civilizational progress, moral progress, and thinking um, how how contingent was that? Would we expect that to happen again? Um, so I guess a really important example of progress would be uh, the Industrial Revolution, uh, where GDP and life expectancy and a whole other set of variables and proxies that we care about uh, went up, up, up. Um, yeah, this is a cool graph from Whitmore House's website. Um, uh, so if we thought that the Industrial Revolution uh, was very, very contingent, so for instance, if we thought that it was contingent on particular cultural factors to do with Western Europe and the wake of the Reformation, then we might be less confident that we'd be able to recreate an Industrial Revolution in, in an extreme collapse event. Um, that historical theory that it's very contingent on, say, cultural factors to do with Western Europe is pretty controversial. Um, and indeed, a lot of the historical literature on the Industrial Revolution is somewhat ideologically fraught. Um, but I think it's a really important question to work out. Uh, do you think that a second industrial revolution, if we, if we lost all of our technological base now, do you think that we could come back? Um, and looking at, looking at how the industrial revolution actually, ha actually happened uh, could be a really helpful way of doing that. Um, there are other kinds of progress that we could also look at and think about whether we think it's inevitable or, or highly contingent. So things like moral progress, expanding moral circle, abolition of slavery, uh, franchise for women. Do we think that those are, uh, you know, positive moral events, uh, positive moral changes that would be likely to happen in some other place if they hadn't happened where they did happen? Um, or do we think that they're very, very contingent? Um, so I think there's a bunch of things we could help us to see about what we should be working on. Uh, I've given an example about whether we should be working on our future, and also some examples about how we would think about global catastrophic risks and how urgent they are to work on. Um, I also think, so that's what stuff should we be doing. Um, I also think that history can help us think about how we should be doing the stuff that we think we should be doing um, on a more kind of object level uh, plane. Um, so I'm going to give three examples that I think are pretty important here. Um, one of them is philanthropy. So some of the people in this room and a lot of people at this conference um, are thinking about what's the best way to, uh, to give money to the right causes. How do we identify the right causes? 
how, do we, how do we spot the thing that could change the future? Um, and looking at how philanthropy has worked in the past, and which, which philanthropic endeavors have been most impactful, could be really helpful in giving us lessons to direct our efforts. Um, so one kind of salient example of this would be the Green Revolution. This is Norman Borlaug, who developed uh, much higher yield strains of wheat and is kind of attributed to, is thought to have saved like a billion lives uh, through, the, through doing this in the Green Revolution. And that, um, his project was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, a lot of the stuff that Rockefeller Foundation funds um, is a lot less impactful than this. Uh, but they hit gold, and how did they hit gold? Um, and the Open Philanthropy Project, which is one of the biggest funders in this space, um, have been doing a lot of historical research into the history of philanthropy. So if you're interested in this, I'd really encourage you to look into what they've been doing and look at the, look at the research threads that are coming out of that. Um, so that's one example of how history might help us to work out how we should do the thing that we want to do. Um, another set of questions uh, is about um, movement building. So some of us here are working on building the EA community. Um, specifically, I'd say that all of us are also thinking about building communities in some sense, uh, even if we're not working on kind of explicitly meta EA movement building. Uh, we're still thinking about, you know, how can I how can I link up with the right people in Queen Meet, or how can um, how it, how can we foster AI safety uh, learning and recruitment in a better way? So we're all thinking to some degree about what are the good ways to manage communities and to bring people together. And looking at past examples of movements that have gone well and less well um, can yield a whole bunch of object-level lessons about what we should be doing. So one interesting example here, I think, is looking at feminism. Um, so feminism has been, in some sense, really, really successful. Uh, I bet you've all heard of it, for a start. Um, uh, and it's um, very, very widespread. On the other hand, maybe there are ways in which feminism has been less successful and we don't want to copy it. Uh, so feminism is also highly politicised for instance, um, and, it, and it can be polarizing. Um, so that means that a lot, of the, a lot of the debate around feminism is maybe like less useful or not pushing forwards on the things that feminists actually want to change in the world. It's more uh, fighting with people who they disagree with. Um, also, another way of looking at it would be, uh, you know, feminism has uh, got many factions within it, and maybe that's not the kind of community that we want to build. So looking at how, that, how those splits happened uh, could be really interesting. That's one example. There are a whole host of examples of movements which might be like, really interesting comparisons for some of the things that we're trying to do. So thinking about uh, academic movements, um, so there are some movements that maybe like, share some of the ideas that we care about, like evidence-based medicine or evidence-based policy, and looking at how those ideas came about and how they got spread um, and how they got implemented could be really useful. Um, also just movements which aren't particularly related to the things that we care about, but which were successful. So for instance, neoliberalism and the impact that neo neoliberalism has had on academia in general, uh, which is very profound, uh, could be a really interesting case study for uh, some of the kind of academic uh, uh, projects that EA is trying to promote. Um, so that's a, that's a second object-level area where I think further historical research could help us to draw lessons about how we should be doing uh, what we're working on. Um, and then a final example of kind of this more kind of object level, how should we do what we care about stuff, um, is looking at historical analogies for artificial intelligence. Um, on the face of it, that sounds wrong. Uh, I saw your face and I was like, yep, sounds wrong. Um, so um, obviously a lot of the things that we are worried about uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence are completely unprecedented, and that's sort of why we're worried about them. Uh, but if you look at history, there are examples of technologies that have been transformative to some degree. 
Uh, not maybe the degree that we expect from artificial intelligence, but we actually don't know how impactful artificial intelligence will be yet. Um, and it, we've also not got, we've not got better evidence to look at <laughs> when it comes to precedent. Um, and there are, some, there are some areas of history which I think might really help us to think about this. Um, so when you're thinking about really profound transformative effects on history, I think the two, uh, the two things which seem to stand out are the Neolithic Revolution, uh, when humans discovered agriculture, and the Industrial Revolution, um, when we when all of the all of the lines went up on the graph. Um, so thinking about how those events were transformative, whether they were good or bad, uh, it seems like the Industrial Revolution was probably really good, um, and the, the Neolithic Revolution was plausibly bad, um, uh, as in it plausibly reduced the uh, standard of living and made people less happy. Uh, but this is up for debate, and I don't know the answers. Um, but looking at, looking at whether it was good or bad seems kind of important, um, and then looking at what factors drove that, and whether anyone could have influenced those factors. Uh, seems like something I would really like to see that see that paper um, when thinking about artificial intelligence. Um, so that's kind of a big picture way of thinking about AI um, through through the lens of history. Um, there are also more particular uh, um, technologies uh, which might give us good blueprints for thinking about the governance of new, technolo new technologies. Um, so here I'm thinking about especially the example of uh, nuclear weapons, which have a bunch of destabilizing strategic effects, which might be similar to some things that come out of AI, um, and where the international community spent a lot of man hours thinking about control and governance and how to stabilize things to varying degrees of success. Um, but there's a, there's a whole bunch of really interesting historical case studies that we could be looking at there. Just to give one example, um, there's this plan called the Baruch Plan, uh, which was developed by the United States uh, for the international control of nuclear weapons. And the plan didn't, didn't get adopted and possibly was never genuinely meant to be adopted. Um, but looking at uh, how people thought that could work and what was convincing and not convincing to different political actors about that plan um, could help us think through how a more successful version of international control of um, certain kinds of weaponized AI might work. Um, there are also um, kind of other examples, like for instance, aviation. In the 1930s, um, in particular, there was a big push for the international control of aviation, which at the time people thought might be a much more devastating technology even than it was in terms of aerial bombing. Um, so looking at past attempts to control particular technologies, even if they're far less transformative or turned out to be less transformative than we accept the AI to be, could help us think through a bunch of strategic and political questions which really matter. Um, so I've talked through some research questions that I think it would be worth looking at, both in terms of what stuff we should work on, and in terms of how we should work on that stuff. Um, now I want to zoom out a bit and think about approaching history in general. Um, one thing that really struck me when I was studying history was that the ways that historians talked about history, the historians I was with talked about history, were very different to how I saw EA's approaching history. And at the time, this confused me. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about where I think there are differences of opinion. Um, and where I, where I think the, the line should fall on those questions. Um, but again, it'd be really interesting to debate that with you and see what you guys think. Um, so the first thing that I observed is, when I was a student, uh, I was often told, like, you can't, draw, you can't draw direct lessons from history. It's impossible. You shouldn't try. It's naive and foolish. <laughs> um, and something that I feel is like, more similar to the EA position is, like, yeah, sure, we can draw direct and robust lessons from history, and we should go out and find those lessons. Um, I think a lot of what's going on here is to do with how messy history is. I think historians are correct in thinking 
it's really, really hard to like, isolate causation when you're looking at historical data. Often the data is very bad. Uh, you know, I mentioned like the Black Death maybe killed between a third and a half of people in Europe. That is almost as precise as you can get from the data. <laughs> um, so it is hard to, to isolate causal factors in history, and it is hard to um, like directly work out what we should be doing from history. I also think there are arguments to be made that humans historically haven't been very good at drawing lessons from history. Um, so I, I guess a classic example of this would be uh, you know, World War I was called the war to end all wars, um, and then we had World War II. Um, and it seems like there was some lesson drawing that, that didn't happen there. Um, on the other hand, I think there are a bunch of really good counterexamples of humans like really, really updating historical lessons. So like maybe like the EU and peace in Western Europe following World War II is a good example of us having like worked out how to do this thing. Um, so uh, my, my like, position on this is I think we definitely can draw lessons, and we just need to be careful about how far we can push them. Um, so there's a thing about not naively claiming, like, oh yeah, this thing happened once, so we should do that thing because it will lead to this thing again. Obviously, that's too simplistic. Um, but I think there's a kind of pessimism in, in his, in, among historians which we should push back against. Um, a second difference is to do with truth. Um, so uh, a lot of the historians that I spent time with were quite influenced by postmodernism, quite influenced by constructivist theories, um, and kind of tended towards kind of everything is just a narrative, history is just interpretation, um, let's like play around with this stuff a bit. Um, and I think there's a, there's a kind of straw man EA position, which is like, everything is true or false, tell me the answer. Um, I'm personally very dubious of a lot of the like hardcore postmodernist stuff about everything being just narrative. Um, I think there is a matter of fact to a lot of history. Um, but I think that there's one kind of important point that they're making as well, which I would like to uh, draw out, um, which is that, when it, especially when it comes to high-level historical narratives, it is kind of a narrative, and it's quite difficult to prove something true or false at that level. Uh, you know, I can prove that... Well, even this is a difficult, but like, there are matters of fact, like GDP did X or GDP did Y... Um, but then when, you, when it comes to big, big stories, like the 19th century is about slavery and empire, and it's like, you know, a really bad time for exploitation. That's based on some true things. That's based on matters of fact. But there's another story I could say about the 19th century, which is um, the Industrial Revolution, and like human technology just exploded, and productivity just exploded. That's also based on true things. Um, but at that really high narrative level, it's difficult to, it's difficult to say, oh, that's false or that's true. That doesn't mean I think it's that some stories are not better than others. Um, and how I think we should be framing it is more like which stories and narratives at a high level are more accurate and, and better explain the data that we have. Um, but I think there's a thing about there's one thing about being like humble and recognizing that these big these big meta narratives we can't actually prove, and we should we should be clear about what we can and can't prove. And there's another thing about having good conversations with historians where they don't think that you're really naive um, and like can prove your theory of history. Um, uh, then the third thing I want to talk about, which I think is a bit different, is how uh, lots of people in the, historic, in, the his, in the history profession approach progress. Um, as an undergraduate, we, like, as undergraduates, we were all taught, like, it's wrong to think of history as a history of progress, that's a really outmoded way of looking at history, um, and it's wrong for a bunch of reasons. Um, I think probably in this room, most people think, yeah, but things have got a whole lot better. <laughs> um, I also think that. Um, but... Uh, what I want to talk about a little bit is why I think some historians think that it's wrong, because I think there are some good reasons that we should be paying attention to there. So 
Some kind of causal reason that I think historians think that it's wrong to think of history as a history of progress is because the Victorians were really keen on that. <laughs> um, and there's some kind of like, I don't want to be like the Victorians thing going on. Um, but there are a couple of, I think, important points there about uh, things that can go wrong when you're arguing that history is a history of progress. One thing is about humility. Um, I think it's wrong to think that um, everyone in the past was stupid um, or that nothing important happened in the past. Uh, like we can see a bunch of things in which past societies were better than our society at. So like an example of this might be mindfulness. Like Western science has like recently worked out that mindfulness can be quite helpful for some things, um, and there are other philosophies which like work that out a whole a whole like you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, so it's not the case that we know everything and people in the past knew nothing. Um, for, in the Victorians' case, their their ideas about progress were also tied up with their idea that they were the best civilization and that other civilizations around them were inferior. So there's some kind of like uh, stepping back and being humble thing, which I think we should be doing. Uh, like there are important things to learn about the past. You know, Newton was a pretty cool guy. Uh, maybe maybe some people have worked out things that we haven't worked out or that we've forgotten. There's one other point that I think historians are reacting against, which is Victorians and other historians who've interpreted history as a history of progress have often thought about that progress as inevitable. I don't think that's a thing that EAs are doing, because I think if you thought that progress was inevitable, you wouldn't be worried about a bunch of things that you're worried about. <laughs> um, but it's something that we should be paying attention to and not, like, not falling into. Um, However, in my opinion, and I expect in a lot of your opinions, uh, it is the case that things have progressed a lot over history. I'd much rather live today than in other times in the past. We're a lot richer than we were before. Uh, there's a lot more political freedom, etc., etc. And, and I think my final reflection on why historians don't like to think of it as history of progress is something like, I think there's some kind of uh, wariness about uh, being disrespectful of the people who were kind of crushed under the wheels of history. You know, yes, the Industrial Revolution may have been really great for us, but Think about all those factory workers. And I think there's like some good empathetic thing going on there, but I think that, that shouldn't blind us to uh, like what are the accurate macro historical trends that are going on here. Um, so I think it's really important to recognize that things have progressed, uh, but we should be careful to be um, epistemically humble and recognize that there are important things that happened in the past that we can learn from. Um, so to wrap up, um, there are a bunch of things I think historians could learn from EAs about the past. I also think there's a bunch of things that EAs could learn um, from history, and I would be really excited to see answers to some of the questions that I've raised. Um, uh, like Something that's cool about history compared to other research areas is I think that you don't need to have, there isn't such a body of skill or knowledge that you need to have before you can actively contribute. Um, so I'd say that if people here in this room are interested in any of the questions, you can just go and do it. Uh, like You don't need to do a year of maths before you can answer some of these historical questions. Um, and I'd really encourage you, if you're, if you're intrigued by any of this stuff, to go out and find what's been written about it, um, read about it, think, you know, have a think, and then write up what you find. Because uh, lots, lots of these questions have already been looked at by historians, but we haven't like, properly integrated, integrated what they've got to say. So like, for me, this, a, a big win from this talk would be if like, even just one of you writes an EA forum post on something <laughs> that I've raised today. Um, so like, these are some of the things that I've mentioned as possible areas of like fruitful further research. There's just like a whole bunch of things that I haven't mentioned that I also think could be really productive. Um, and I'd encourage you to think about it. I reckon that some of these questions could, could really change um, how we think about what we want to do and how we should do it. Um, and I'm excited about finding the answers. Thank you. Unfortunately, we're sort of short on time for questions.
So we'll just do a couple, and then uh, you can find it for office hours at 1230 today during lunch. Yeah, so the first question we have here um, is uh, you, you spoke a bit in the abstract about what methods are good for uh, talking about history. You know, some of the methods historians use seem to sh sort of shy away from the kinds of answers you could want. Um, can you drop a name or two or describe a little bit in more detail uh, what sorts of methods you think EAs might find fruitful? Yeah, I actually think. Um, this is kind of a question, but I actually think economic methods might be better um, for answering some of these questions than the historical method. Um, so I'd be kind of excited to see um, kind of more quantitative economic econometric approaches to things like the industrial revolution, uh, or the Neolithic revolution, even if we can get any data on that. Um, so that's that's one thing I think would be good. Um, hmm, maybe uh, a, cool, a cool book, I think, on the Industrial Revolution is Pomerantz's The Great Divergence. Um, and I think he's got some pretty good ideas about how to how to integrate different kinds of evidence. Um, and how to think about macro historical processes while still grounding it in, in like, things we have data on. Um, and kind of along these lines, I saw you had um, a picture there from a post by Bruce Melhauser. Yeah. Um, is that a post you would recommend? And if so, are there any others like that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I have a slide with links on it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, cool. So the top link is the history of land stuff I mentioned from OpenFill. Um, the second link is a link to Government's AI Program's research agenda. Um, they are really interested in uh, a whole bunch of stuff to do with AI governance and strategy, but there's some really cool historical questions there to do with nuclear weapons and other things. So I really encourage people who are interested in that line of inquiry to look at the research agenda. And then this is Little House's very, very interesting post on the English Revolution, which I would certainly recommend. Um, as a final question, um, would you recommend that people try to engage with the academic historical conversation or just write blog posts or somewhere in the middle? This is a really good question. I mean, that's someone asked this. Um, I personally am not that optimistic about engaging with the historical profession academically. Uh, I think it's more important to engage with uh, like the past as a sort of inquiry um, and then share what you find with the community. That doesn't mean I don't think we should be reading what historians have written. Uh, it just means I think that like the incentives and interests of the academic profession um, are like pointing people in a different direction to the one that we care about. Um, and so probably it's more fruitful to be reading their stuff, taking what's useful for us, and then like sharing that insight with the community. Uh, but I, I could update on that. I'm not super sure on that. Cool. Well, with that, thank you so much. Thank you.